Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear why vaccination rates in rural communities are lagging behind more populated areas. Plus, we'll talk with the residents of a local mobile home community who are trying to gain ownership of the park. Once you own, help own the park, you now become a community. And we learn how the sale of a Boulder chocolate company fits into a larger trend in the candy industry. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. On Wednesday, Governor Jared Polis announced that Colorado is on track for 70 percent of adults to receive at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine by July 4th. To date, 69.4 percent of Coloradans have met this goal. But there are vast geographic disparities in that number. In more populous front-range counties like Boulder, Denver, Larimer, and Jefferson, the percentage of residents who have received at least one dose ranges from 66 percent to 77 percent. But many rural areas and smaller communities are trailing behind. Trish McLean is the director for the Northeast Colorado Health Department, which oversees Logan, Morgan, Phillips, Sedgwick, Washington, and Yuma counties. In these counties, vaccine rates range from 30 percent to 52 percent. I recently spoke with Trish about how distribution is going and what barriers these counties still face. She started by describing the interest level in getting vaccinated in northern Colorado. I would say it's similar to what we're seeing in a lot of rural counties in Colorado. I think that there may be some interest, but it's not a huge priority. So I think with summer, families are trying to get back into some sort of a normal rhythm with things. So it's it's not the highest on their priority list at this point. And have you seen that interest change or fall over time? Yeah, definitely. I think when we first got vaccine right before Christmas, there was a huge demand and we had such limited amounts of vaccine and it was really tough to make sure that we were able to get to those priority populations and make sure that we were taking care of those that were the most vulnerable. But as vaccine supply has increased, it really has outpaced demand. I think that people who were really concerned that they really wanted to get the vaccine have been able to receive it. And then those that maybe were less concerned about getting it, but thought, well, yeah, I can get it when it's my turn. They've had the opportunity to to get it. And then those folks who are just like, you know, I don't have time to go and make an appointment for a vaccine, or I don't have time to, you know, I've got other things I want to get done. We're, we're kind of at that point, I think. So we're trying to get creative with how we provide opportunities for people to get vaccine, as well as how we message around, you know, that it's, it's never too late to get vaccinated. And here are some opportunities that you can access the vaccine. As you continue those efforts to reach out to people and get more shots in arms, what barriers do you think still exist? And maybe what barriers do you think specifically exist for people in more rural areas of the state compared to folks in the densely populated front range? I think geography plays a huge role in being a barrier out here in Northeast Colorado. Our health district is about 9,200 square miles. So that's roughly the size of the state of Vermont. So we have small municipalities and people who don't live 
near a town that have to drive a long way to get to a pharmacy or to another outlet that might provide vaccines. So it's not unusual for folks to have to drive, you know, a half an hour or an hour to get to some of these services. And for families that may be on have limited income and have to drive quite a ways, that can be a huge hit economically, especially with the price of gas, trying to drive an hour to get a vaccine may not be high on their priority list if you need that gas to get back and forth to work. So I think just the sheer geography that we face out here is a, is a big barrier for some. We've been fortunate that the state has provided one of the vaccine buses out to our region. So we've tried really hard to work with them to send the buses to, or send the bus to some of those areas where we may not have a huge population density, but we do have people out there that still want the vaccine. So we've, we've tried really hard to coordinate with them to reach some of those places where just geographically, it's hard to, to get to some place where there's vaccine. Have any of these strategies that you guys have been working on been super successful, any more so than others as it relates to vaccinating folks? Well, I think anytime we get someone vaccinated, it's a success. I think it it looks a little different out here just because our numbers are so small. So we may send the bus out to, let's say we send it out to Eckley and we get six people vaccinated, that's a success to me. Whereas if you were in a front range community and you sent a bus someplace and you only vaccinated six people, you'd be like, man, that wasn't worth it. But for those people that were able to access the vaccine in Eckley, that might be the only opportunity for them because it's close to where they live. And so I think that success looks may look a little different out here just because we have smaller populations. And so you may not see the big numbers, but I think it's just kind of that little by little that we we continue to to increase our vaccine uptake. We have heard health officials in Colorado and national health officials become increasingly concerned about the spread of variants to this virus and specifically the highly contagious Delta variant. Where are you at with that? Are you worried about the variant spreading in your neck of the woods? Obviously, it's something that we are concerned about. I think anytime you have a variant that is more contagious and you have a population that is less vaccinated, that's that's definitely a cause for concern. We're continuing to monitor variant cases in our region. Almost all of the positives that are tested from our region then get sequenced to see if it is a variant. So we definitely are monitoring that and doing our best to put out information regarding that. And again, helping to remind people that if you're not vaccinated, this is a great time because we do have more contagious variants circulating. So yeah, it's definitely something that is concerning. And we just hope that we're able to educate people on the concern and then also provide them opportunity if they choose to get vaccine. Trish McLean is the director for the Northeast Colorado Health Department. Trish, thanks for talking with us. Thank you. As Colorado enters the hottest months of the year, drought and high temperatures are on most people's minds. But researchers at Colorado State University are still focused on snow. They're members of the NASA SnowX campaign. And as KUNC's Ashley Pacone reports, they're trying to figure out just how much water comes from the snow that hits the mountains each winter. For the past few winters, CSU professor Dan McGrath and his graduate students have made a bi-weekly trek up Cameron Pass to measure the snowpack. They use ground-penetrating radar. He walks me through the process outside of their lab on campus. 
And the way we do that is that the radi radar instrument transmits a pulse of radio energy and we basically measure the time it takes to travel from the instrument down to the ground snow interface and then back up to the instrument. Which is attached to a large sled. Throughout the season, they see longer and longer delays in the radar travel time as the snowpack builds up. It's just the opposite when the snow begins to melt. Alex olsen Mikitovich is the team's resident drone pilot. In addition to the radar measurements, the drone takes images in a grid. Then olsen Mikitovich uses them to construct a 3D model of the area. It's basically like taking your field site home with you. We can fly around in this model just kind of like a video game. So we have these every time we go out and we can then stack them up on top of each other and basically watch the snow accumulate and melt over time. But field samples are also taken. When they arrive at their site on Cameron Pass, graduate student Ella Bump starts digging a snow pit. They're about a meter deep with measurements every 10 centimeters or so. This is a wedge cutter for measuring density and it's got a volume of one liter. And so when we take density measurements, we just weigh this um, and then we can figure out the density from there. All of these tasks have the same end goal, according to Dan McGrath, measuring the snow water equivalent or how much water is stored in the snowpack. And at present, there's no single way of doing it. And that's why this NASA campaign is, is occurring, is to test and evaluate these different approaches. The CSU Research Group is one of many across the West working together on NASA's SnowX campaign. U.S. Forest Service and SnowX scientist Kelly Elder says the project came together because the nationwide team wanted to measure snow with a satellite in space. But that's very difficult. The fantasy was that we could just shoot pictures in some area of the spectrum of the Earth's surface with snow on it and get answers. And after decades of frustration, we figured out that really we need two other elements to pull it all together. The other two necessities are on-site measurements, like the ones on Cameron Pass, and computer models. Without them, images from current satellites can only measure how much area is covered by snow, not how much water is actually in the snow. And the amount of water in snow is what's important for water managers, because 70 to 80 percent of the water for western cities and agriculture comes from snowpack. And even over a basin the size of the Poudre, we have relatively high uncertainty in our predictions of how much water is going to come out on any given year, even with a long record. If you throw climate change in on top of that, we've got a real problem. Future satellites combined with the work on the ground might change that. NASA and the Indian Space Research Organization have partnered to launch one at the beginning of 2023. But that satellite isn't specifically made to measure snow. It's just a bonus. While the data will be useful, McGrath says a perfect solution is probably still years away. The goal of this whole campaign is to be able to to measure this snow water equivalency from space and to do it globally all the time, essentially. So we'd have these, you know, every 10 days or 12 days, we'd have this image of how much snow is on the ground in these locations. And that will just hugely inform how you know, agriculture is done, how water is managed, um, and, and especially in a changing climate. His team plans to keep working on different tools that may help. Next summer, they're even headed to Alaska for some measurements. And although measuring the amount of water in snow may not solve the drought problem, he says it will make the West more prepared. Ashley Picconi, KUNC.
You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. This week, Hershey, one of the world's largest chocolate manufacturers, finalized a deal to acquire a Boulder-based company, Lily Sweets, that makes no-added-sugar confections. Here to talk more about this and how it fits into a larger trend in the food industry is Lucas High, a reporter for BizWest. Lucas, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Erin. It's a, a sweet topic that we're going to get into today. For those who aren't familiar with Lilies, tell us a little bit about the company. So Lilies bills itself as a, a, a better-for-you candy company. So essentially, they make uh, stevia sweetened chocolate uh, products. So you know, we're talking about chocolate chips or you know chocolate-covered nuts. Um, all, the, all that kind of good stuff. And, uh, you know, essentially their, their purpose is to provide a product for folks that, uh, you know, have sugar sensitivities, maybe on diets uh, and are just uh, trying to look for an alternative to your more traditional sweets. And the, the company was uh, was founded by a woman by the name of uh, Cynthia Tice. Uh, she had uh, she'd been in the you know natural product space for, for quite some time. She had a uh, a natural grocery store in Philadelphia in the 70s and, uh, you know, eventually uh, founded Lily's and kind of uh, came out to Boulder, uh, set up shop out here. Uh, she, uh, over the last couple of years, ha- has uh, has sort of stepped away uh, from, from day-to-day operations of the business. And uh, a woman by the name of Jane Miller, who is uh, who is pretty well known in uh, in the food business, she's had roles with, uh, you know, big companies uh, like PepsiCo and uh, Frito-Lay and things like that in the past. Uh, she sort of stepped in to run day-to-day operations as uh, president and CEO of the company. Why was this small company in Boulder so attractive to Hershey's? What does Hershey's get out of this deal? So Hershey's has really kind of placed a pretty big bet on on this better for you um, snack and and candy market. So you know the, the company estimates that that industry is nearly a one and a half billion dollar per year industry. But leaders at, at Hershey's have said that you know they expect that market to to more than double in the not too distant future. So, so we're talking about a, a pretty big sector uh, that, that Hershey's is is trying to kind of buy its way into. Yeah, this isn't the first time Hershey's has kind of gotten into this better for market, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, in fact, uh, this isn't even the first time that, that Hershey's has uh, kind of looked to the front range uh, to bolster its better for you uh, snacking portfolio. In 2019, they spent uh, almost $400 million to buy one brands, which is a Boulder-based company that makes nutritional bars. Uh, they, they make the the, uh, the one bar product. And, you know, they've also done deals uh, with uh, Quinn Snacks and uh, the parent company of Skinny Pop. So like I said, I mean, Hershey's has really taken uh, an M&A, a mergers and acquisition approach to scooping up these smaller companies and, uh, you know, building out their their better for your portfolio. What does Lily's gain from this acquisition? First and foremost, money. Uh, You know, it's not exactly clear to me, uh, you know, how how the the finances work uh, as far as the acquisition goes. But, you know, it's a pretty good bet that uh, the company's executives and investors uh, will make a pretty penny off of this deal. Um, and the, the the other benefit is uh, expanded distribution. So, you know, Lily's went national with its distribution uh, around 2013. So it's had pretty uh, pretty wide distribution for a while now. Uh, but it's really hard to imagine that that Hershey won't bring something to the table as far as getting the product uh, onto more store shelves. Well, Lucas, this all seems like it further cements Boulder's legacy, uh, for lack of a better word here, of pioneering uh, healthier foods and beverages. Is this seen as furthering that trend? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's pretty safe to say that that Boulder is one of, if not the sort of mecca of natural and organic foods. 
you know, we're, we're talking about an area that that uh, grew companies like Bobo's Oat Bars and Justin's and Boulder Brands, which is the parent company behind pretty popular uh, brands like Udi's and Earth Balance, Glutino, those kind of things. And it's also home to uh, Naturally Boulder, which is a trade organization that has been around for quite some time and actually has has expanded all over the country to support um, natural and organic products and and sort of better for you food products. You know, Boulder has been and will continue to be a leader in this space. And I, you know, I expect more deals uh, similar to to the Lily's, Lily's deal to to come down the pike. Uh, whether it's it's Hershey or another big consumer packaged goods company that that scoops them up, I, I think we'll see more of these. Lucas High is a reporter for Biz West. You can read his reporting on this at KUNC.org. Lucas, thanks as always for joining us. Of course, thank you. In June, two mobile home parks, one in Durango and one in Boulder, officially became resident-owned communities, or ROCs. That gives residents ownership rights and leaves them in charge of the maintenance, upkeep, and regulations for their community. And although those two communities have been successful in their endeavors, another park in Fort Collins is running into roadblocks with their work to become an ROC. Colorado Editions' Alana Schreiber spoke with residents of Hickory Village to learn how they are rallying to reimagine their community. It's a windy Tuesday evening at the beginning of June, and residents of the Hickory Village Mobile Home Park in Fort Collins are gathering for a community meeting. Back in May, the owner of Hickory Village decided to sell the park. And the residents? We want to buy this as a community so that we have control over repairs, getting repairs done, having clean and safe environment for the children that are in the park here and the elderly. Diane Mays has lived at Hickory Village since 2006. And she's been frustrated with the ownership for the last few years. Things get out of control. There's holes in the concrete, water lines broke that have never been fixed. The pipes, they're so old, they need to be replaced. So... When the owner issued a statement intending to sell the park, she helped organize residents who knew they wanted to put in an offer. She serves as president of the board of directors for Hickory Community Cooperative. Most people that live in a mobile home park are low-income families, single parents, elderly, disabled people. As a community, we can take all take care of each other and take care of the community. And we've had to go to the city. We've had to go to outside sources to get, you know, things done. The main outside source, the man who's running tonight's meeting, is Andy Cadlick. Andy is the program director for Thistle Rock, a nonprofit that helps residents of mobile home parks to become resident-owned communities. A resident-owned community, or a rock, is essentially a cooperative where the residents who live in the manufactured housing park are the true owners of the community. You know, normally residents who live in the homes own their homes, but they rent the land underneath the homes. What we're doing is really kind of shifting that ownership model so that residents control how that park is operated, managed, and what sort of rules and regulations they choose to enforce upon themselves. So far, Thistle Rock has a pretty good track record. They've successfully converted five Colorado parks into ROCs, including two just in the last month. And tonight, in front of the nearly 60 residents in attendance, he switches back and forth between English and Spanish and answers a lot of the questions about what it means to become an ROC. One of the most common questions we get is, you know, I'm buying my own lot, correct? And that's not typically how this process works. The residents are the members of the cooperative and the cooperative jointly owns the land together. 
But even if the residents can buy the park, that doesn't guarantee the owner will sell to them. So Hickory Village um, was noticed a few months ago under a new law in the state of Colorado called Opportunity to Purchase, which essentially gives the right to residents in manufactured housing parks statewide to be noticed when the owner is intending to sell the park. They must notice the residents and give them 90 days to essentially decide whether they want to look at resident ownership as an option and go under contract and obtain a binding commitment of financing. So this OTP is unique in the way that residents do not have a right to purchase a park. They only have an opportunity. There's never a guarantee that the owner will accept the offer. The owner must only negotiate in good faith. But so far, the residents haven't even been able to negotiate, even though their offer is actually competitive. We got an offer made up that we were going to present to the owner. The other offer was 23 mil, and we offered 100,000 more. Got it to him in time way before June 1st, and he never responded back with us. He just ignored us. That's how I see it. So we had to get an attorney, and the attorney got it to where we get a new 90-day notice, because it has to be a proper notice. Last Friday, the owner did reissue that notice, which reset the clock on the 90 days, giving residents more time to resubmit, negotiate, and fundraise. We reached out to the owner for comment, but never heard back. And while the residents wait for their response, many are worried. I was so stressed I had to get medication because I was worried they were just going to boot us out. Madalena Garza, or Maggie, has lived in the park since 1988. For her, becoming an ROC isn't just about ownership rights. It's about finally fixing all of the problems she's been voicing for years with little or no response. My tree has raised my trailer. What are they going to do about that? If there's a fire in my house, I won't be able to get out. The back door is where it raised it. It kind of did something to it, unlodged it, and I can't get out the back door. And they said, oh yeah, we're going to take care of it, and it never happens. Maggie's daughter and former Hickory Village resident, Jennifer. And then they said that my mom had, dad had planted the tree, and it wasn't. They don't want to take the blame for it. Yes. It's expensive to take those trees out. They cut the top off, and they left the stump. It was used to be a nice place. Jose, a 12-year resident. I mean, that's why we moved here. Yeah, initially, you know, it was like a nice place to raise your kids and, you know, the park. But now, you know, my mission is just not good. They don't care. So I think there needs to be a new management, definitely, you know. I mean, based in the community residents, you know, so they know what it is to pay the bills. For many, becoming an ROC means that the owners will actually have a vested interest in maintaining their homes. Once again, Jennifer Garza. I think that... If they become a resident-owned community, since they are actually living in the community, they know what the needs are for the community. Someone that lives out of state doesn't know what's going on. They have someone who's running it, but maybe not running it to what the, the needs are. But I think if they own it, then they have more say because, for example, if I tell you, you know, something's wrong with my mobile home. You're going to see me. You're going to have to, you know what I mean? So there's more of an accountability. So I think it'll be good for them. But if they don't become an ROC, some are worried about becoming homeless, including Maggie Garza and her neighbor, Teresa Cruz. Where are we going to go, Maggie? Yeah, yeah that's I mean, what I'm saying. It's hard for us because... To we, start over we're, again. We're alone. Uh-huh, and yeah. we're alone. And I'm already 72 and I'm still working. And if things change, and I might have to pay more money if they charge more lot, lot rent, you know. As it is, I'm barely... See, that's like me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm on a fixed income because when my husband died, he was a veteran. But, I mean, I don't get no VA benefits. 
So I don't know what's going to happen. A few weeks ago, Bill Fulbright, a longtime resident of Hickory Village, spoke up about the need to become an ROC at the Fort Collins City Council meeting. And he convinced the council to pledge 200000 to the cause. It's not something I normally do. <laughs> but I think this is important enough that people need to step up. You know, yeah, some of these homes are in very poor condition. I had one lady tell me she's probably going to have to move out of her home because it's breaking in two. But she doesn't have enough money to get it rejacked. Well, maybe we can get people to help her. You know, because we should be a community. We can put out flyers and say, hey, so-and-so needs a little help. Can you guys give us five hours on the weekend? We'll crawl around under the home. For residents like Bill, an ROC isn't hard to imagine. But it's still unclear what might happen in the next 90 days. Until then, the residents are left to hope and envision the Hickory Village that they would like to live in. A park that's owned by an owner, you're just a resident. But once you own, help own the park, you now become a community. We are working together to improve the quality and value of our homes. For KUNC, I'm Alana Schreiber. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, ahead of the holiday weekend, we hear the story of some recent bald eagle drama at Stanley Lake that garnered global attention. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 